Hello everyone, Al from Point of Insanity Game Studio, and welcome back to Geekery in General. Today's episode is going to be expanding upon a topic I covered in an earlier episode, way back in episode 154. I did an episode called The Nine Hells, where I took a look at some of the historical and mythological inspirations behind the Nine Hells in 1st Edition Manual of the Plains. Now, in that particular episode, I focused primarily on Dante's Inferno, as it's pretty obvious that's where they drew a lot of their inspiration from, but the devils and the archdevils are not the only people who inhabit the Nine Hells. There are actually a few gods from mythology that also inhabit the Nine Hells as well. And we're going to be taking a look at some of those deities in just a moment. But first, a quick announcement. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. And we're back. So if you've listened to some of my other episodes where I talked about the historical, religious, and mythological inspirations for some of the other uh, outer planes in uh, Dungeons and Dragons, you notice that I would often talk about some of the deities that inhabited these realms and tried to determine, well, is it a fitting match to put that particular god or goddess in that outer plane? So we're going to take a look at just a handful of gods that AD&D places in the Nine Hells and maybe talk a little bit about whether we think they truly belong there or if maybe they should actually belong on another plane of existence. So first, there is Druaga. Now he shares the same level of hell as Dispater does and according to Manual of the Plains, the two tolerate each other. So they're not really in any sort of conflict with each other, but probably wouldn't go out of their way to assist the other in a time of crisis. The Deities and Demigods book from 1st edition lists him as being one of the Babylonian gods, though this actually is not very accurate. Now, as far as I could tell from my research, Druaga, also known as Druj, which is spelled D-R-U-J, has its roots in Zoanastrianism as a personification of falsehood. And he wasn't really seen as 
necessarily an entity, but rather as a force that was personified, but like I said, not an actual entity. So let's just take a quick look at Zoroastrianism. It is a religion that did originate in Iran, though it actually is believed to have uh, some roots that go back quite earlier, and it is believed that it did influence some of the other early monotheistic religions. Now, Zoroastrianism is actually very, very dualistic. They worshipped a supreme god known as Uhura Mazda. This deity was entirely benevolent, and he's opposed by another deity known as Angra Menu. Now, this being is considered Uhara Mazda's rival, and never his equal. Angra Mainu is actually very similar to the role that we see Satan play in uh, biblical literature, and that is that of the deceiver or the tempter. His goal is to draw people away from the path of righteousness. So in that case, he actually would be a very fitting resident of hell. The first level is home to an Egyptian god known as Set. It's said he inhabits a desert where slaves build a pyramid that he hopes will eventually connect to uh, the neighboring plain of Acheron, which is the step between the Nine Hells and Nirvana. Because if you look at the cosmology, where we have the Nine Hells representing lawful evil and Nirvana representing lawful neutral, Acheron is that step in between. It is lawful neutral with evil tendencies, or lawful evil with neutral tendencies. So kind of that mid-ground in there. Set, being an Egyptian god, has actually gone through many changes. But first and foremost, he is a warrior god. He is also the god of chaos, storms, and foreigners. He may not have always been been seen as such, though. Early depictions of Set show him protecting the boat of the sun god Ra from the god Apep. This god, Apep, took the form of a giant snake and would wait in the underworld for his chance to attack the sun. Some scholars have suggested that Apep and Set's battles may have been what some ancient Egyptians thought caused thunderstorms. However, later kingdoms did not picture Set in such a positive light. And we can see this by taking a look at a story called the Osiris myth. This is one of the most well-known tales from Egyptian mythology. It appears in a variety of sources and does have many different forms and different versions. There have also actually been some ancient Egyptian writers that made their own humorous version of it, where they pictured Set as this strong, powerful, but dim-witted oaf, whereas Horus was pictured as being 
physically weaker, but a lot more intelligent and more cunning. The most basic form of the Osiris myth is as follows. Osiris ascends as the king of Egypt. This causes a conflict with his brother Set, who murders him. Set cuts up Osiris's body and scatters the pieces throughout Egypt. Now, exactly what Osiris did that made Set want to do this to him is unclear. I've heard a couple of different uh, versions. In uh, some versions, it's just because of Osiris defeating Set in a previous fight, or there's another version that involves uh, sexual misconduct. But in any case, Set kills Osiris. Well, Osiris's wife, Isis, collects the pieces and brings Osiris back to life long enough for them to conceive their son, Horus. So Osiris became the first mummy. He then takes up rulership of Duat, the Egyptian home of the dead. Horus eventually retakes the throne from Set, and he becomes the new rightful king of Egypt. Now, the manner in which Horus uh, defeats Set does vary from version to version. In some versions of the story, the two engage in a physical confrontation, which Set uh, is driven out of Egypt by Horus. Other versions I've heard of, they picture it going about as more of a legal affair, where Horus has to plead his case to the other gods, and then he gets set thrown out that way. Some scholars have suggested that the various themes of the myth may have been inspired by real events. One theory is that during its early history, Egypt struggled against violent foreigners. This event may have been responsible for Set's fall from the warrior who protects the sun from chaos to the one who brings chaos. Symbolically, we see Set overthrowing Osiris as being symbolic of Egypt's real rightful king being overthrown by a foreigner. And eventually when Horus retakes the throne, then that is showing uh, Egypt regaining control of itself, regaining its sovereignty. Well, does Set belong in the Nine Hells? I think, yes, he does. Because, well, at least if we are going to go by the the popular version of him. And as far as I know, that is the more common version that we see of Set in Egyptian mythology. Again, most of the stories and surviving information we have about him do show him in that role. So, since he's one who rebelled against uh, the rightful king, we could draw some parallels between uh, Set and Osiris and uh, draw a parallel with uh, the uh, Christian story of Satan and the fallen angels rebelling against God. Now, the next two deities I'd like to talk about are two goddesses, Hecate and Inanna. Now, both of these goddesses 
make their homes on the fourth layer. They're kind of like Druaga with his relationship with Despater. They are known to call upon each other, so they'll you'll find representatives from uh, these goddesses in the courts of the devils and devils in the courts of these goddesses. But for the most part, they're they they tolerate each other. And one of the things that Manual of the Plains uh, does mention is one of the reasons that the devils probably tolerate these two is because Asmodeus doesn't want to upset the delicate balance of power in his realms. Uh, He's concerned that if he were to do something to anger Hecate, that it might cause the Olympians to uh, attack or do some, you know, take action against his, uh, his realms. And if he was to do something that would upset Inanna, it's quite possible that this would cause the Sumerian pantheon to react hostily as well. So first, Hecate. I'm pretty sure how that's pronounced, uh, Hecate. I've heard it pronounced Hecatate, though I'm not sure where they would get that second T from. And there's a couple other different pronunciations I've heard of it as well. But deities and demigods pictures her as the goddess of night, witchcraft, and black magic. And you may recall when I did my episode on Mount Olympus with my friend Dawn, she mentioned that, well, didn't really think that uh, Hecate would really fit the, the lawful evil image. And she was actually very respected because she had the power to curse generations. Because apparently, in uh, Greek lore, you don't just curse a person. You curse their entire family and their several generations to come. Now, in mythology, she is associated with those things, night and magic. But she's also associated with plants, poison, the crossroads, doorways, and boundaries. It was said that Greeks would sometimes set up shrines to her by the entrances to their homes because it was believed she had the ability to keep a home safe from ghosts and evil spirits. It was also believed that she could bestow prosperity upon a family. So this is an opposite of her ability to curse an entire generation. So, yeah, the kind of goddess where you definitely want to be on her good side. And if you did your daily offerings and prayers to her, she could very well make your family prosperous. She was also seen as an intermediary, perhaps because of her association with doorways and boundaries. She could act as a go-between between both the gods and the titans, as well as the gods and humans. Dogs were said to be sacred to her as well, and this makes a sense considering her association with the night, boundaries, and protection. I mean, you know, dogs have long served as protectors of the home, and, you know, night watchmen will sometimes use dogs because, while their keen sense of hearing and smell, they might be able to pick up on a strange sound or a strange scent at night 
well before the human master might be able to, to see it with their eyes. Now, I'm not sure she belongs here. And again, the more I did uh, in, with my research on her, again, doesn't seem like she really would be the lawful evil type. She seems, if anything else, more lawful neutral. So honestly, I would probably be more inclined to place her in Nirvana uh, than I would in The Nine Hells. At least that's what I think from my own personal you know, research that I did for this episode uh, about Hecate. But like I said, definitely the kind of goddess that needs to be both feared and respected. Next is Inanna. She is the Sumerian goddess of love, war, politics, justice, retribution, and fertility. Quite a diverse portfolio there, and one of the reasons scholars have suggested is that she may have taken control of these different areas of influence from several other goddesses, and or possibly even gods. Because it's not unusual in mythologies to see, you know, well, at least when we look at uh, how the people who you know, believe in a certain set of gods, how they see their those changes over time, sometimes we do see roles for a, a god or a goddess change. For example, if we take a look at the Norse pantheon, most people will know Odin as the, the ruler and uh, kingly figure of the Norse pantheon though some scholars have suggested that earlier on, uh, Tyr may have actually held that specific position within the Pantheon. But again, over time, the people began to see Odin more as the king, whereas Tyr, again, still a god of war, but a god of justice as well. Now, Anana was known as Ishtar to the Babylonians. Now, it's interesting, though, that Deities and Demigods lists Ishtar as being true neutral and puts her in Elysium instead of the Nine Hells. Again, she's mentioned as being generally indifferent uh, to the devils. In mythology, Inanna was known for her many conquests. And Sometimes it involved a a conquest or an action against another god or goddess. Other times it was against uh, humans. Now there is one well-known legend about her where she tried to take over the underworld from her sister, Ereshkigal. The story goes that Inanna descended into the underworld to pay her sister a visit. And again, it's not quite clear why she wanted to claim the underworld from her, or even if that was her intention there, to try to overthrow her sister. But when she's greeted at the first gate, because they believe the underworld had a series of seven walls, and each had a gate, and each time she passed through a gate, she had to take off one of her articles of clothing, or one of her objects of power. And I mentioned this a little bit when I talked about uh, uh, Hades, the three glooms. 
because uh, you might remember Nergal is listed in there as well, and he's got his city where each time you pass through a gate, you have to make a saving throw, and it gets progressively harder. You fail your save, you can't leave. So Inanna comes before her sister naked, and it's said then that she tried to snatch the throne, or she may have just been disrespectful. But in any case, this made Ereshkigal angry, so she killed Inanna and placed her corpse on a hook. Well, fortunately, uh, she was rescued by her servant Ningshuber. Her and Enki had created two mourners and equipped them with the water of life and the food of life. And when they went down to uh, visit Ereshkigal, they managed to uh, touch the goddess with their mourning and how uh, they were mourning for the dead. And she was; they were granted a, a boon. So they were they asked to be able to see the that corpse that was Inanna, and they used the bread and or the food and the water of life to bring her to resurrect her. Well, Inanna though was not able to leave the underworld unless someone took her place. So when she returned to Earth, she found that everyone had been mourning for her. The only exception was her husband, Dumuzi. So uh, Dumuzi was taken to hell by demons. And while they, since Dumuzi was a fertility god, this would have, of course, negative repercussions. So Dumuzi's sister agreed to spend half of his time of the year in hell, or in the underworld. Another known story about her is she does make an appearance in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So Inanna was known to be very vengeful, and she tries to make Gilgamesh fall in love with her. But the hero king seems aware of the fate of Dumuzi and some of her other lovers. So this makes Inanna angry. She asks Anu for the bull of heaven. And when Anu refuses, she threatens to break the gate to the underworld and let the dead return to the earth. Well, Anu has no choice but to grant this request. So the Bull of Heaven attacks Gilgamesh's city, and it was defeated by both Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu. So any Final Fantasy fans out there, Gilgamesh probably sounds familiar to you. He has made appearances in uh, the games from uh, 5 and then I know he's appeared in a few others in the series as well, but again, his first was in Final Fantasy V, where he appeared as a rival to Bart's. And he, even Enkidu, made an appearance in there as well, where he called Enkidu his faithful companion. Also, uh, not too long ago, I've been playing a lot of Final Fantasy XV lately, and we picked up uh, the downloadable content, and in episode Gladiolus, uh, Gladio has to fight Gilgamesh to prove himself worthy. Well, in any case, uh, Enkidu and Gilgamesh manage to defeat the Bull of Heaven, and though, of course, this makes the gods angry, so Enkidu is infected with a wasting disease, and eventually this causes Gilgamesh to go on this his own quest for immortality. But is Inanna an appropriate goddess for the Nine Hells? I would say yes. 
because again, she does have that connection to the underworld where she tried to take it over from Ereshkigal, and she was also seen to be a very vengeful deity. Next, there's the Chinese god No Cha. Now, according to Manual of the Plains, No Cha does not have a dwelling, but instead he wanders through the lairs. And it says that he steals minor little odds and ends. He, you know, he just takes minor trinkets. He doesn't take anything that would possibly cause a war or draw undue attention to himself. Deities and demigods describes him as a god of thieves. And actually, their appearance that they give him in deities and demigods does actually get that his appearance quite right. It describes him as having three faces eight arms, and being 60 feet in height. And based on the uh, stories I was able to find about this deity, it actually does seem pretty accurate. That's about where the similarities end. Now, according to legend, Nocha, and actually the name that I've, another name I found for him was Nezha, was a god of protection. He is also a vanquisher of demons, and in Taoism, he is known as the Marshal of the Central Altar and the Third Lotus Prince. It was said that he was born from a ball of flesh that his mother had, his mother had carried for over three years. After being born, uh, as he grew older, the East Sea Dragon King, Ao Guang, started demanding his followers bring him children to eat. Well, one of the Dragon King's followers kidnapped one of Nocha's friends and intended to use him as a sacrifice. Well, Nocha responded by beating up the follower. This attracted the attention and the wrath of the Dragon King, who sent one of his sons to slay Nocha, but the boy killed the dragon instead. The Dragon King threatened to cause a flood in retaliation, so Nocha committed suicide as a way to prevent the Dragon King from doing this. After he had died, his soul spoke to his mother in a dream and asked her to build him a temple. Well, people started to make offerings to Nocha, and in exchange he would perform miracles. He was eventually resurrected by his teacher, Taiyi Zenren, who formed a new body for him out of lotus roots, and gave him two new magic weapons, a fire-tipped spear and the wind fire wheels. So, as a side note, uh, this deity is still worshipped in Taoism and Chinese folk religions. He was said to fly around on his wind fire wheels, and for this reason he's seen as a patron of professional drivers. And some bus, truck, and taxi drivers will keep a statue of him on the dashboard in hopes that he will protect them while they're on the road. So, how did they take this warrior hero demigod and turn him into a god of thieves? Not really sure. I couldn't find any myths or any stories or traditions to support uh, why he would be, uh, why he would make sense as a god of thieves. It's possible because he was also seen as the patron of gamblers, so maybe that's where they got that from.
or as I've said before, it's also possible that maybe Jeff Grubb and the people who are helping him write the manual of the planes, maybe they found some stories that I didn't, and that's what that's what made them uh, drop this god the way they did. Well, the last entity I'd like to talk about is not a god, but rather a devil. T.T. Vilius. Hope I pronounced that correctly. But this devil, I didn't mention in my other episode because, again, he wasn't one of the devil lords and uh, also didn't really control a lair. And I couldn't really find anything that really would equate with him in the Inferno. But this particular devil was said to be the the demon scribe, where he would cause scribes to make errors when they were manually copying manuscripts. Because back then, before the invention of the printing press, copying the Bible by hand could be a very tiring and time-consuming process. I remember in one of my art classes in college, the professor had us do an assignment based on one of the pastimes these monks had. If you've ever looked at pictures of old manuscripts, you'll notice sometimes the first letter of the first word in a chapter or a section might be done up in an artistic fashion. This, so for, so for this assignment, we had to take a letter and then we had to paint it using a similar style. Also, sometimes you would see the bottom or corner of a page decorated with drawings of an angel or other characters. This is because this is one of the few reliefs from boredom that these monks had. Now, Titavilius was said to cause scribes to lose focus on their work and make mistakes. So, hey... If you were a scribe back then and you made a mistake in a manuscript you were copying, you could always say that the devil made me do it. So he was a sower of incorrect information. It was also believed that he would cause members of a congregation to talk among themselves in a church. This would cause the clergymen to talk faster, possibly messing up the prayer or the message they were trying to convey. Now, he would also said to record people's sins and then store them in hell so they could be used against them when they face judgment. Now, Manual of the Plains also makes an interesting point about the Nine Hells, that there are other devils that have the same names as gods, and it is possible for Tidavellius to try to make people invoking these gods mess up so they actually invoke the devil version of that that entity instead. Well, that's about all I have to say about the Nine Hells for now. I'd like to thank you for tuning in, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio.
Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com, and we'll set something up.